0: Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come this morning to um, parts of your word that are maybe hard to understand, uh, rich and deep and meaningful. We pray, Jesus, that you would um, make them clear to us, make them known. Like your first disciples, we are often slow to understand, slow to hear, slow to believe. And I pray that you'd help us this morning. Um, Jesus, teach us in words that we can understand. Um, Please make your word, um, bring it alive in our hearts. Jesus, we would follow you, we would know you better, we would serve you better, we would love you more, and we pray for your help this morning. In your precious name, amen. All right, so uh, November 2014 was a big month in the whole house, because it was the month of Sarah's 40th birthday. Um, and you can imagine uh, that that was an important month Um, and I decided for her birthday to plan a day full of surprises. Um, Now this was only the second time in our ten-year marriage that I've attempted to surprise my wife and the first time was for her 30th birthday and it it went reasonably well Um, but Sarah told me back then that she really doesn't like surprises. (laughs) (laughs) sometime later that's right but when 40 rolled around I thought I'd give the surprise idea one more shot (laughs) so I spent months carefully planning and orchestrating a day of special events in and around Tallahassee and I kept the itinerary secret but the best part was that for every stop we made, I arranged for friends and family, often people from out of town, to show up unexpectedly um, at the various stops and uh, and spend time with Sarah. And then at the end of the day, everybody who'd been part of the day got together for a big party in the evening. So it was a day full of happy surprises. Sounds great, right? (laughs) And I think it ended up being a pretty good day. But the fact remains that Sarah really doesn't like surprises much. Um, She has a lot more fun when she knows what to expect. So Jesus is a good king for Sarah. Because Jesus is really not that big on surprises either. So when he came to earth, he pretty much told his followers exactly what to expect. He told them exactly what was going to happen. He even told them several times in advance that he was going to die and rise again. And I think if it had been me, I would have certainly have kept that one under my hat. <laughs> but Jesus told them what to expect. So today we're going to look at Luke 13, verses 18 through 21. And Jesus here tells his followers what to expect from his kingdom, what to expect the kingdom of God to be like. And this is a really important subject for Jesus to teach on, because everybody was already expecting something. They were expecting his kingdom to look in some way like something familiar. So maybe they were expecting it would look like King David's kingdom, a kingdom full of brave warriors fighting mighty battles. Maybe that would be what Jesus' kingdom was like. Or maybe it would be like Solomon's kingdom, which was glittering with golden splendor. Or maybe it would be something like Babylon, reaching its power across the world. Or maybe even a little bit like Rome, spreading organization and military power and technical innovation. So the people had a lot of examples of kingdoms doing different things. And all these were great kingdoms. And Jesus taught that his kingdom would be like them in some ways, but profoundly different. In other ways so here are three things that we learn about God's kingdom in Luke 13 first the kingdom of God grows like a tree but it's not like the trees of the past second the kingdom of God claims territory but not by conquest and third the kingdom of God is our home but it's a new kind of home So first, the kingdom of God is like a tree, but it's not like the trees of the past. And that's a bit obscure, so I'll explain what I mean. Um, In Luke 13, verse 19, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a tree, a mustard tree. And uh, this idea of a kingdom being like a tree would actually have been instantly familiar to uh, everyone who heard him because the image of a tree to represent a kingdom is pretty common in the Old Testament. We see it actually a lot of times, over and over. So we read one of them this morning from Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision of a great tree that reaches to heaven. And then later on in, in the chapter, the part we didn't read, Daniel explains the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw, and he tells him directly that the great tree represents the king himself. King Nebuchadnezzar is the tree as the head of the great kingdom of Babylon. And then the Bible clearly uses the same image of a tree to describe several other kingdoms too. It uses it to describe Egypt and Assyria and even Israel itself in different parts of the Old Testament. And in those places where we see kingdoms likened to trees, it's most commonly cedar trees. That was the the archetype of the great tree, the great cedar of Lebanon, um, which uh, we think were tall and magnificent trees um, and could have uh, gone over 100 feet tall. Um, And a common part in the Old Testament of all these times where kingdoms are likened to trees is this idea of the birds of the air coming to nest in the branches. That's part of those images too. So in Daniel 4, it's a good example. Verse 12 says... Uh, Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Remember that that's a description of Babylon, a brutal pagan empire. But in Daniel 4, Babylon is cast in a very positive light. It's like a great tree that shelters and nourishes the world and people from all around come to Babylon for protection and for provision. It's unusually a very positive picture of what we know as a very violent earthly kingdom. But although there are good things about earthly kingdoms, they usually share the same problem and the problem they all share is pride. So as these kingdoms grow and get tall and famous, they always become arrogant. They reach up to heaven and they call themselves gods. And so another common part of the image is that God has to cut the tree down. Now that's another important aspect of this picture of a great tree. Because if you think about it, trees are tall and great and glorious, but they're easily cut down. And when they fall, they fall catastrophically. They go from greatness to nothing in an afternoon. And that was how the story ended for Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome. They all reached up their branches to heaven and God had to cut their trees down. So the symbol of a great tree to represent a great kingdom was part of the common stock of Old Testament symbols. Now here's what Jesus says in Luke 13, verse 18. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So we can see right away that Jesus' parable has continuity with the Old Testament images of kingdoms. He's comparing God's kingdom to a tree, and it's a tree that will provide shelter to the birds of the air, and all that is familiar territory. But in Jesus' parable, there's also some discontinuity. So the kingdom of God is not a cedar tree, but instead it's a mustard tree. The great cedars of Lebanon could soar over a 100 feet. The mustard tree grows to about 10 or 12 feet tall. The mustard tree is bigger than all the garden plants, as Jesus says in Matthew, but it's one of the smallest of the trees. If the kingdoms of the past were marked by grandeur leading to arrogance and claiming to be God, then God's own kingdom is marked by the opposite. It's marked by humility. It serves the birds of the air without reaching its branches to the heavens. And this lack of arrogance in God's kingdom also means that there's no need for it to be cut down. That was the reason the tall trees were cut down. But this kingdom is humble, and this kingdom is eternal. There's another surprise in Luke 13, and that's that Jesus pays so much attention to the seed of the tree. That's brand new. That's not part of the Old Testament images. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. And I'm sure you've heard that the seeds of a mustard tree are remarkable for being so tiny. They're tiny. They're only about one or two millimeters across. I could be holding one right now, and you'd never know it. I'm actually not. But they're tiny. They're about the size of a grain of sugar. And it's pretty amazing that any kind of tree at all can grow out of a seed that small. And that, I think, is Jesus's main point with this image, that his kingdom is going to start small. It's going to begin with surprisingly little. It begins with one crucified leader and 11 terrified men and no resources whatsoever. But Jesus is encouraging his followers ahead of time not to despair, not to give up, not to be ashamed of such an unimpressive start, and not to despise the day of small beginnings. The God of wonders can grow a tree out of a mustard seed. He grew the mighty nation of Israel out of one decrepit, childless old man. And he was going to grow a new kingdom out of 11 terrified men. Just watch this. The kingdom of God was only a tiny seed, but it was going to become a tree with birds coming to nest in its branches. Within 300 years, Christianity would become the official faith of the Roman Empire, and something like 20 million people would be naming Jesus as their Lord. From a mustard seed to a tree in 300 years or less. That's the way that God likes to do things. He doesn't do things in big, splashy, impressive ways that happen quickly and suddenly. He always tends to start small and grow things slowly and steadily over a long period of time. He likes to grow things organically everywhere in his universe. He makes new stars out of the stars he has. He makes new cells out of the cells he has. And he reaches new people using the people he has. So James brings the good news to Fred, and Fred brings it to Rachel. And through these humble steps, little by little, a mustard seed grows into a tree. God does it through you and me. When we think that in the early days of the kingdom of Jesus, it grew from 3,000 people on Pentecost Day to 20 million people within 300 years, that sounds blazingly fast and impressive, doesn't it? Do you know what the rate of growth is in the first 300 years of the church? The average rate of growth is only 3% a year. And that's lower than my IRA. (laughs) Friends, our local ministry at Incarnation is growing faster than that. (laughs) When we look around at the work God's doing in us and through us, and in and through our community, we might often be tempted to be discouraged And it can sometimes seem like there's very little progress, like we're barely moving forward at all. But that is not the truth. Our problem is that we're basically very impatient people. And when things don't happen right away, we think they're not happening at all. But this parable of the mustard seed calls us to peace and patience. Jesus planted his kingdom with the tiniest of tiny seeds. He grew it at only 3% a year, and it ended up sticking its flag in the Roman Empire. So first, the kingdom of God is like a tree, but not like the great trees of the past. Now second, the kingdom of God claims territory, but not by conquest. This is very important. The people living in the first century Israel were used to being conquered for 600 years. Their land was claimed by Assyria, and then by Babylon, and then by Persia, and then by Greece, and finally by Rome. Five conquering nations in 600 years. And all five of them grew their great empires by a process of conquest. They had large and powerful armies. They marched into their neighboring countries. They took them over by force. And if the people in those neighboring countries resisted, they were killed. If they surrendered, then their country became part of the new new empire. And the conquered countries would have to pay taxes to their conquerors. They'd often have to send their best and brightest people away to serve in the capital of the home nation and they were usually forced to adopt the laws and the culture of the conquering country. And this last part was the worst part of all, having to change your way of life again. The Jewish people had trouble adjusting to some of the practices of Babylonia and Persia, but they faced a real nightmare when Greece came. Because the Greeks brought Hellenistic culture to the Middle East thought that their culture was enlightened, that it was the best and that everybody should live this way. But Hellenistic culture was a huge shock to Middle Eastern values in general and to Jewish values in particular. Hellenistic culture promoted individualism. It elevated the good of the individual over the good of the community. It was a culture that celebrated self-indulgence through food and drink sport and entertainment, sexual license, and excessive leisure time. It provided a cushy life for the social elite by the sweat of slave labor. And the whole system was undergirded by rampant religious pluralism. Now that all sounds very modern, but we're talking about 300 BC. And when we think about ancient Jewish worship, their strict food laws, their compassionate ethics, and their community values, we can only imagine how offensive the Jews found Hellenistic culture. But they were forced to swallow it. The Greeks expected them to accept the new way of life and to throw out the old way. For them, this was part of their right of conquest, the right to change culture. And that process of conquest was the way all of the earthly kingdoms had grown. But Jesus came to start a new kind of kingdom. And it's one that spreads entirely without conquest. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 13, verse 20. This is the second image. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So if the first image that Jesus gives us is about the kingdom growing, the second image is about the kingdom spreading. And again, it starts small. It starts off in one isolated place, and it spreads all through the flour until it's reached every part of it. Three measures of flour is about 30 pounds. So imagine a small spoonful of yeast being worked through a big sack of flour. Only a little leaven, but it makes a big difference. The leaven is what makes the bread rise. Without it, you still have bread, but it's flatbread, like pita bread. And when you add the leaven, the miracle of bread happens. The bread rises and becomes soft and fluffy. But it's still bread. So think about this. The kingdom of God spreads through the kingdoms of the earth like leaven through flour. It comes to every culture and transforms it without changing the culture's essence. The characteristics of heaven spread into culture and enliven it without replacing it. So it's totally unlike the way that the Greek empire tried to force Hellenistic culture onto the Hebrews. When people bow to Jesus as their king, he doesn't whitewash who they are and try to make them something else. He remakes them to be who they really are. This king doesn't make slaves. He comes to set people free from slavery. This king doesn't raise taxes. He's the king who gives instead of taking. And this king doesn't force cultural uniformity. He created and celebrates our cultural diversity. He loves his kingdom to be a multicultural kingdom. The kingdom of heaven spreads throughout the world but not ever by conquest. It spreads through a message of life and hope that makes sense to every culture, if we can only find the words to translate it. So the good news of Jesus comes not as some foreign pronouncement in another language, but as a message from home that people have been waiting to hear. And as we join Jesus on his mission of spreading the good news of his kingdom, This is part of the challenge for us, of translating the message faithfully so that to the people we speak to, it sounds like a message from home. So that's the second thing. The kingdom of God claims territory, but not by conquest. And now third, the kingdom of God is our home, but it's a new kind of home. As I was meditating on these two images together, the image of the leaven, and the image of the mustard tree. Um, I realize that they're both images that speak strongly of home, especially to the uh, mind of the people of Israel. They're both very important symbols in the history of Israel. Because every year, if you think about it, the Jewish people celebrated the Passover, which was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And before the Passover feast every year, they were commanded to go through their houses and clear out every trace of leaven. They were to search every nook and crowding and get rid of every part of the leaven so that their bread would be completely unleavened. Why did it have to be unleavened? Well, God explains that in the law that the bread has to be unleavened every year because the feast recalls that night when the Israelites fled from their slavery in Egypt. That night was the first Passover, the night that the angel of death passed over the children of Abraham. And on that dramatic night, there wasn't any time to leaven the bread and let it rise. They were leaving in a hurry. They were running for their lives. So the bread was unleavened, because they were not safely home yet. And so when the Jewish people think about a woman leavening flour, it means that she's home, she's secure, she has time to bake the bread properly. If unleavened bread is a frantic dash for freedom, then leavened bread means security and peace. Then after the Exodus, From Egypt, the people of Israel spent 40 years camping in the desert, moving around in the wilderness. And while they were in that season, nobody got to plant any trees. During that season of their lives, their dream was to reach the promised land, to have a country of their own, to have a place where they could finally settle and plant and farm and grow things. So the first idea of a man planting a seed in his own garden is also a symbol of home. It means he has land. And then in the two images, the idea of home is also embedded directly because we read that the birds of the air come to make their nests in the branches of the mustard tree. So all in all, Jesus is communicating through these parables that the kingdom of God is home. It's home in a way that Egypt was never home. And it's home in the way that the wilderness was never home, but the promised land was home. When we turn to Jesus as our Lord, we become part of his kingdom. And in a very real sense, we come home. We're adopted into the family of God. We get to call God Father. We have a new citizenship in heaven and a new family of brothers and sisters on earth. But at the same time, our deepest longings for home are not yet satisfied. And I've been feeling that very strongly recently. Um, Because we're not yet with God. We can't see Jesus face to face. We're not yet in the place we long to be. The place we pray for where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. There are still some ways that our present lives are much more like the wilderness season of Israel's history than the promised land season. We're still waiting for the arrival, the part where there's settling and security and planting trees and leavening loaves. I know for myself that I often experience a deep longing for home, which is sometimes a physical ache. And there have been some times when I thought that that was a longing for England, (laughs) <laughs> but I know now that it's really not. I could move back to England, but I'd still ache for home. Sarah and I have moved around a lot in our lives. We moved house yesterday, <clears throat> and, uh, and that was Sarah's 19th move. <clears throat> so neither of us really knows anymore how to answer the question, where's home for you? <laughs> and I suspect that some of you feel the same. Americans in the 20 to 35 age bracket move on average every three years. And I know that many of you are far from the place that you call home. So for we who are home-hungry travelers, what does it mean for us that the kingdom of God is our home? Well, it does mean that we have a living relationship with God now as our heavenly father who loves us, who knows us, who guides our steps, and who hears our prayers. And it means that we have a real family among the household of God, people to walk with, to share burdens with, to weep with, and to laugh with. Yesterday, I didn't move house alone. I had five dear brothers alongside me who were a great comfort and help along a weary road. These relationships with our father and with our brothers and sisters are the most important thing about home. They're the thing that really makes it home at all. And we have those things already. But there's also more to come. The New Testament talks about our future home in several places. And I chose to read this morning from Hebrews 11. Which says this about the country that is to come. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We aren't really home yet, but we're on the road. Jesus is leading us there. God has prepared a city for us, and when we get there, we will know that we are finally home. So today, if we've come into the kingdom of God, then we've come home to our Father, and we're on the road to his country. And if you don't really feel like you're home yet, then join the club. That's the way the Bible says we're going to feel. But we're not in the wrong kingdom. We're just not at the end of the story yet. So in these few words in Luke 13, Jesus explains a lot about his kingdom, that it grows like a tree but not like the trees of the past, that it claims territory across the whole world, but never by conquest, and that this kingdom is our true home. Jesus was straightforward with his followers about what to expect. He's really not big on surprises, and we can see from our perspective in history that his words were true. We're following the right king. His kingdom is the right tree for our nests, and we can trust him to lead us all the way home. Let's pray. Jesus, please comfort our hearts with these words. Please give us strength for the road. And please help us to love one another. In your name we pray. Amen.